Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist, a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and I am awake in Los Angeles right now, super early. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Allison Farnbach. I'm a natural IPE figure pro, and I am a nutritionist and trainer, owner of Alley Fitness Systems. Sweet. Okay. Awesome. We are going to get to uh, Allison's origin story in just a little bit, uh, see where she's coming from, get some perspective. First, we are going to do the usual news and mail. Uh, the news are just sort of nice, and, and they're sort of brief. The first one is from Caleb. He says, hey there, just reaching out to say two things. One, your show is amazing, and two, uh, I know who your next guest should be. So he's encouraged me to bring on um, a guest who his sort of angle, I think, is to mesh career and fitness. And a lot of people mm -hmm. realize it's if your career is something other than purely fitness. And I guess, Mike, you and I were kind of in that gray area where yeah. it, it is, but you know, then there's the academic stuff. But uh, anyway, so uh, that would be a topic about creating sustainable systems for getting and staying in shape. So um, stay tuned, maybe, for that. I'll follow up on that email. Thanks, Caleb. And then um, we got a message from Jared. He said, just wanted to share some reasons why I like Iron Radio. One, it isn't a 50-minute ad every week for some crappy change-your-life-in-eight-weeks book. <laughs> Two, <laughs> I appreciate that. Two, my e-book. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> you don't spend the first 40 to 50 minutes talking about your wild weekend or girls that you used to date. Three, it isn't 50 minutes of misogyny and bro-speak. Uh, four, you do provide sound research-backed evidence and experience uh, and driven advice, uh, learning, uh, et cetera, that I can incorporate into my training or at least gain some insights from. And I'm really glad to have Iron Radio. Thanks for your service, Jared. So that was nice, Jared. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. All right, on to a little bit of news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one is... It's personal for me right now because I, I hurt my back doing bent oh, no. rows this week. And <laughs> go figure, there's new treatment guidelines for low back pain that just came out. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I wasn't doing anything crazy. It's not like I'm twisting or, you know, I was just two and a quarter bent rows, kind of my usual deal. Honestly, I don't go much heavier than that these days. There's not much reason to. But um, anyway... Basically, this is from uh, Mercola's website, and he's a controversial guy when it comes to stuff like, um, you know, immunizations and, you know, just any number of things. But this is some interesting stuff he's sharing. The American College of Physicians updated treatment guidelines for acute and chronic low back pain 
sidesteps medication as a first-line treatment and recommends non-drug therapies instead. Again, at least as front-line. Exercise and functional movement are the most effective prevention and treatment strategies for most types of back pain. So just digging into this just a bit, back pain is one of the most common health complaints across the globe. Uh, We know that. Number one cause of job disability. Uh, There's... The problem with this, of course, is if it becomes chronic, it, it can, you could risk opioid dependence and that sort of thing because people really get shut down. You know, we were just talking about um, pain meds and powerlifting and stuff uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, especially, it says, if you have depression or anxiety, you're at particularly high risk for opioid abuse and addiction. It does say 75 to 80% of low back pain cases resolve in two to four weeks, even without treatment. Uh, particularly true for mechanical low back pain that you might get from a strain such as lifting, uh, twisting while holding something heavy, or a car collision or a fall. Medscape, he points out, lists a number of ways to manage uh, this type of pain, including controlling inflammation, restoring range of motion, improving muscle strength and endurance, coordinating that with some cardio, and maintaining your exercise program. So of these five, the first two are interesting to me because I think the rest our listeners more or less do as far as, you know, having strong backs and whatnot. But um, it says when this happens, if you do get hurt, especially when it's mechanical low back pain, most people baby it and they try not to move as much as possible. But in many cases, this is actually contraindicated. And he quotes The Guardian. And, you know, we've had some friends in the U.K. kind of point out, you know, it's not exactly peer-reviewed stuff, and that's fine, but he's pointing at least to this quote. Uh, Despite a host of treatment options, including acupuncture, manual therapy, drugs, injections, and surgery, nothing is more likely uh, to work than staying active. Just when you feel least like it and it hurts the most, it may be the time experts say you have to get moving. So, again, I don't want anybody to hurt themselves excessively, mm-hmm. but... Uh, getting moving again, I think is a common theme when it comes to almost any rehab. So. Yeah, one of the questions I always ask clients is, if they have an injury, is what exercises can you do now? So I have a current client who's got uh, some thumb wrist stuff going on. So even just, you know, left-sided work for a while, you know, she can do lower body stuff within reason, you know, making sure that it's not painful, making sure you're not aggravating whatever the injury is. I think it's, you know, I've been injured enough in the past that it can be very easy to look and go, oh, well, I can't back squat now. I can't deadlift. Can't lift at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there this morning. I mean, I, I am going to the gym, you know, because I'm highly motivated to do that. But I'm going to have to be careful at the same time. You know, I'm not going to. Oh, gonna... yeah. Okay. Just quickly, the guidelines from the American College of Physicians. Uh, these, were, these are brand new, spanking new, three primary recommendations Uh, It says steroid injections and acetaminophen are discouraged, as studies suggest neither is helpful or beneficial. It goes on to point out that acetaminophen, or Tylenol, of course, does not lower inflammation. I think a lot of us know that. And they were saying that even the the corticosteroids are really on par with placebo in a lot of studies. So they suggest uh, if you have subacute low back pain, sort of what I'm dealing with at the moment, it says focus on select non-pharmacologic treatment with superficial heat, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, muscle relaxants, and things of that nature. Um, So I feel like I'm on par with that. I just took three ibuprofen. I got a heating pad on my back, and I'm taking some magnesium, you know. So 
number two, for chronic low back pain, multidisciplinary rehab, uh, acupuncture, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, tai chi, yoga, progressive relaxation, some electromyography biofeedback, uh, and things like that. And then it says, also in patients with chronic low back pain who don't get any relief from the non-pharmacologic stuff, uh, consider NSAIDs, basically. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. Uh, Mercola goes on to add a few things of his own, like vitamin D and fish oils. I think things that are generally anti-inflammatory sort of in nature or help in, in other ways. Uh, so anyway, a, a tidbit there on low back pain, and I'm listening to some of the advice myself. Yeah, well, I hope it gets back to normal pretty soon. That's no fun. Oh, I know. Well, I'm just going to work around it. So it's, it, you know, you know, Mike, it's not my goal to just take up more space these days. So <laughs> I just want to be able to get back in there. And then this last one, this is from the Journal of Sports Science and Medicine. I just got it yesterday. Uh, curcumin and piperine supplementation and recovery following exercise-induced muscle damage, a randomized controlled trial. So this is from Delacroix and colleagues. And Mike, you and I have talked about before, the problem with a lot of these phytochemicals, including curcumin, is bioavailability. So they, oh, yeah. they added the curcumin and the um, piperine, or bioperin is a brand name, I believe. There's a, different uh, names for it, but they took 10 elite rugby players uh, in a randomized crossover design. They got them good and sore, and they looked at their performance and blood creatine kinase concentrations. And some of our listeners know that's a marker of damage. Um, so what happened? It says, let's see, the soreness-inducing exercise did, in fact, have a negative effect on their concentric peak torque, so their muscle strength, in a sense, um, sprint performance, and counter-movement jumps. Uh, also, it increased creatine kinase out to 72 hours after exercise. So 24 hours after exercise, however, the treatment group that got the cur curcumin and the uh, piperine, uh, they did have uh, moderately lower reductions in sprint power output, apparently, hmm. um, uh, compared to the placebo. It says, however, no other effect was found between the two conditions. And in my experience, that's what you see with this kind of stuff. You know, one study will say, oh, th this inflammatory marker is down or this performance marker was less reduced, you know, during the state of soreness. In my own dissertation, I was looking at it. There was a 15% reduction in um, force production, essentially strength when guys were really rocked. So um, partly effective, I guess, is what I would conclude from that. And again, that sounds like par for the course for some of these anti-inflammatory um, phytochemicals. Yeah, and I wonder even that on the, the time course, too, because, like, turmeric, things like that are kind of a hormetic stressor. So I wonder if you add a little bit too much stress, maybe it's more delayed, or maybe there just isn't an effect, or, I don't know. It's always kind of messy to tease all that out, too. It is, because the protocols, I mean, they can yeah. range. Usually, you can induce soreness between 25 and 40 eccentric repetitions, you know. and But, yeah, if you crush them too hard... And then you go look at, for example, creatine kinase, you're not going to find anything. You're not going to find a, a supplement pill reducing that probably. I mean, some studies mm -hmm. say it, show it, but yeah, there's definitely a sweet spot where you can become sore without being so rocked that 
no pill you swallow is going to erase that. You know. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, but having said that, um, um, I just had one quick study here too. Mm. Uh, it's called the effect of mouth rinsing and ingestion of carbohydrate solutions on mood and perceptual responses during exercise. Uh, this is January 2017, uh, Ali and colleagues, uh, ALI. And what's interesting is they took a bunch of nine pretty moderately trained male cyclists. They glycogen depleted them for 90 minutes, which is not very fun. And then they followed that with a low carbohydrate meal prior to completing an overnight fast. And they brought them back in the morning, did a one hour uh, cycle time trial and they tried four different conditions. So they had, you know, the nice randomized counterbalance design. They used a uh, 15% carbohydrate mouth rinse. So people just put it in their mouth, rinse it around and spit it out. They did a 7.5% carbohydrate ingestion, placebo mouth rinse, and then placebo um, ingestion. And the short version of all of that is that in the carbohydrate reduced rate, which is interesting because that hasn't been studied much before, the mouth rinsing with the carbohydrate solution did not impact their sort of perceptual response, so how the exercise felt and things of that nature. Mm. But they did find that the carbohydrate ingestion did improve perceived ratings of exertion and increased power output during exercise. And there's actually a similar study, almost the very identical, uh, this month, February, actually, 2017, and they found something similar. That was from Kring and colleagues. So it looks like ingesting carbohydrate is better than just swishing it around in your mouth, which I don't think that's too utterly shocking, but I've been interested in some of the past studies showing that sometimes just rinsing your mouth with carbohydrates may have an effect, um, but I haven't seen any data showing that that's greater than actually ingesting the carbohydrate. And, these right. studies would agree with that. Right. And when you ingest it, of course, it's you're rinsing it in your mouth sort of as you drink it. You know? yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. 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 They kind of get both. Cool. Cool. All right. And so we have, as we said in the top of the hour here, our special guest, Allie. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. <clears throat> so just give us a little background and kind of your origin story how did you get started down down this path fitness uh, oh <laughs> <laughs> um well so i mean i guess it's kind of an open an open-ended question because there's like you know in terms of how i got involved in competing or how i got involved in coaching or how i got involved in you know all that stuff i mean i obviously went to college for exercise science so okay um you know that kind of launched everything but i've been i've been competing in figure uh since i was 20 and i'm 32 <laughs> so nice. that's 12 years and i i want to say i kind of fell into it not by accident but kind you know on a little unintentionally you know i was I was young and I was in college and I had joined a local LA fitness and there was a local bodybuilder there and he just saw me training and he asked me if I competed and I said, oh, like, you know, in, in a sport? And, and he said, no, no, you know, do you compete? And I, I must have just given him a like a dumb look. <laughs> it's like in bodybuilding or figure or something. And I said, no, I don't even, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and uh, he 
basically explained what figure was to me at the time figure was very new um it had just the ifbb had just opened it up as a division separating it from fitness which is i don't even know if fitness is still around in the ifbb you know it was with the routine but um yeah you had to be pretty good at gymnastics then now you can just look good no in a derogatory way (laughs) a a lot of skill involved but he offered to prep me for my first show and and I did and you know I I still look back on that experience and I mean I was in college I was broke as of anything I couldn't afford my food so I was eating like tuna out of packets for every meal you know because that was all I could afford and that was what the dining hall had and <laughs> you know that's um so I did my first show when I was 20 and I was hooked um, and I've been competing ever since. And then in 2015, I switched from competing in the NPC to competing in the OCB, which is a natural drug tested federation. And I achieved my pro card through that federation. And then this past year, uh, 2016, I made my pro debut in Newport News, Virginia. I won my I won my my class and I landed a qualifying spot at the world championships, which were, which were just in Kansas city in November. And I was third. So that's a little bit of my contest history, I guess, or how I got into competing and coaching. You know, I, I graduated college and, you know, my first two jobs were just, oof, they were horrible. (laughs) Um, I guess like most jobs right out of college are, but you know, I worked, I was working as the director of personal training at a franchise Golds, and I was really, I just, I was disgruntled with the quality of training that I saw being conducted in the commercial gym. And I was frustrated because as trainers, we weren't really legally allowed to discuss nutrition with our clients. So then I kind of felt like you're only addressing half the battle when it comes to helping people change their lives. And I really just wanted to get into business for myself so that I could, as selfish as the sounds, do things the way I wanted to, you know, interact with clients the way I wanted to, discuss the things with them that I wanted to help them change their lives, you know, without sort of these um, commercial gym rules and regulations. And at the time, online training was really new. Um, now, of course, it's not. Everybody does it. But, yeah. What year was this? like 2007 2008 yeah yeah so it was very very new and the only reason i opted for that was because i lacked the finances to open like a brick and tile studio and facility but so you know i launched my own website and i started going into business for myself and i've been really blessed i mean here i am nine years later and i do it full time so I've been very, very lucky. And I do now also own a brick and tile studio and I do train, you know, in-person clients out of my own private facility. But, um, you know, I've been doing online coaching for nine years now. <laughs> oh, awesome. What is it you like about the online? You said kind of doing your own thing, but and the flip side to that is what do you think is a negative of doing it online? Um, I would say sometimes the, the lack of being there, particularly when it comes to the exercise, uh, angle of things, 
you know, a lot of times when you program for people, it's, you know, I can't see how they're executing a movement. I find myself asking for videos a lot lately, Mm -hmm. um, particularly if a client is saying, well, you know, I don't feel it or I'm getting knee pain or, and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, or I want to avoid this because it hurts my back. And I'm thinking rather than avoid the movement, let's first see if the movement's being executed efficiently. You know, are you in a good position? You know, that kind of stuff. So sometimes I think one of the downfalls with online training in particular with the exercise side of things is just not being able to be there and see the client visually go through their workout um, so that you can make sure that they're moving properly, things are being performed the way you want them to be performed, you know, and so on. Oh, awesome. Well, we'll insert a, add a little break here and then we'll come back and we'll ask you about the topic of the day, trying to extract some lessons in fat loss from your significant experience. Sounds good. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back to Iron Radio. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And we're here today with fitness pro Allison. 
And in the topic of the day, we're talking about the lessons that she's learned as a fitness pro, and then also how you can apply them to yourself. So maybe if you're not competing or you don't have any desire to compete, you know, what are kind of some of the lessons that we can extract and learn from that process? So we had talked a little bit about um, online and more out of curiosity, more on the, the fitness side real quick. Do you find more advanced people find you for online and more beginners find you for in-person? Or I'm just more curious on what kind of the, the breakdown is for that. Um, you know, initially when I started coaching, I found I was working a lot with other competitors, meaning other bodybuilders, other physique competitors. And over the years, I think, you know, and I know you do online coaching too, but I think as a coach, you tend to, you tend to find what, uh, group of clients you like working with the, the most, mm -hmm. which group you, you know, tend to feel you work better with as well. Um, and I find that I actually really like working with your average you know, male or female who's just looking to improve their life. Um, and I think some of that comes from the fact that I compete myself and I feel like it's just, it's a nice break for me, a nice breather to work with, you know, average men and women who are just, you know, looking to become better versions of themselves rather than just, you know, the extremism of bodybuilding all the time, because my own head is plugged into that as well. Um, so, so sometimes it's just, it's too much to work with those clients, to do it myself, to, you know, it's, it's a nice breather for me. I find that I work probably more now with um, just average, you know, men and women typically looking to lose weight or lose fat. You know, now, of course, I get clients who have strength goals or clients who have muscle gain goals or masking, but in general, I would say, I work the most with, you know, men and women almost equally, which is pretty cool, who are looking to lose weight or to drop body fat. Very cool. What are kind of some of the, the top lessons that you use from your competition and have learned that you apply with that population then? Because I think there's a tendency in society, at least from some of the clients I've worked with, and I've worked with a, a few figure people and uh, natural competitors, not a lot, but just the few that had some issues or trying to get sorted out. Um, but it's interesting to me how from a psychological standpoint, they're quite different. Um, and even where they're at is quite different, but I find that a lot of the same principles still apply, just maybe not to those extremes. So I'm curious as to what you've learned from being a competitor that you apply with kind of your everyday clients. Oh God. <laughs> <I'm still laughs> I know it's a big question. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge question because I'm still learning it. Uh, you know, you you never really, at least hopefully you never really stop learning it. Um, you know, each and every year that I prep, I learn new things about myself as an athlete. And then a lot of times I learn, you know, new things, which I can then, you know, take to my clients. And I mean, you know that, you know, nutrition training, you know, everything, the industry, it's constantly changing and evolving. You know, we're constantly being provided with new information, new research, you know, so there's tons of stuff to take in and translate. Um, 
I think over the years, I would say what I've learned most you know, to apply with my clients is <laughs> through my failings as you know, I've learned what yeah. not to do <laughs> um, or what doesn't work. And I have turned around and applied that with my clients, such as, you know, too much cardio, too long in a caloric deficit, um, you know, learning about the hormonal responses and the uh, adaptational responses that the body goes through in, in accordance with, you know, an extreme diet or fat loss protocol and how to work with that, how to make that work for you rather than against you. Um, you know, those types of things, I would say more than anything, because there's still a prevalence, you know, a lot of times when I get, you know, a client, they'll send me what they're doing. And particularly with women, you know, they're eating like 800 calories a day <laughs> and they're doing like four hours of cardio and they want to know why they're not losing any weight, you know, that type of thing. I'm doing all the right things. And I'm, and I'm sitting there like poking my eyeballs out. <laughs> You know, because there's just such a confusion among the general population as to, you know, what actually is required to lose weight and to lose fat. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Lonnie? Because obviously you've com competed before at a, at a high level. Is Do you find that you kind of learn more from things that kind of unfortunately went more disastrous than things that go well? Because I know that happens with me with just life in general. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, Allison, is like you can certainly learn a lot from your own personal experiences, but your clients aren't you, you know. And one of the things <sighs> that I see a lot of times with um, trainers and they do online coaching and that sort of thing is they say, it worked for me, so you do this, yeah. right? How do, you, how do you personalize it? Are there certain things you monitor um, to see, idea. you know? Um, I, I have some of the most, I mean, I've actually had clients be like, whoa, when I send my, uh, client intake documentation because of the extensive amount of information that I request from a client, um, down to, I think I address lifestyle a lot more than some online trainers do. Um, and I'm going off of my own personal experience and working with coaches myself, but you know, I, I never really had a coach ask me, you know, do you have support at home for this? Mm -hmm. um, do the people who you are, are the people that you surround yourself with, do they eat healthy? Do they not eat healthy? You know, what time of day do you go to bed? What time of day do you get up? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? How much water do you drink a day? Um, what's your job like? Are you a caretaker for a sick person? Are you a mother? Are you, you know, because I think a lot of times what people, you know, forget is that when you're looking at uh, diet and training, particularly with the average person, it's something that should fit with their life. I don't believe in dispensing a program that forces the client to change who they are in order to find success with it. Meaning, if I have a client who can't eat six times a day, they shouldn't have to eat six times a day. They should only be, you know, they should only eat three times a day. You know, things like that need to be adapted to the client. Um, you know, meal timing, meal frequency, food types. Um, and like I said, if I have a client who has, you know, let's say a super stressful job and works 12 hours a day and is also a mother or a father or, 
you know, has a long commute, the last thing you want to do is also tell them that they need to do two hours of cardio a day in addition to a weight training session. I mean, the stress response in their body is going to negate any fat loss they would probably achieve. And so I just, I think I really address lifestyle so that I can make sure that whatever I'm having them do, it makes their life better, not worse. It doesn't add stress to their life. It takes stress away. I hope I'm making sense. No, you are. I, I just think it's so important with the monitoring. I mean, uh, and I know Mike does this to an extreme, uh, but getting baseline and then monitoring it almost, it seems like the fitness community by and large is here's a template, go do this, you know, or it yeah, worked for me. Not... So it will work for you. And you know, it's just, it's really good to get this idea that just like when you go to a doctor, you have an exam done before he starts prescribing you stuff. I hope then it's the same thing with fitness, right? It's a health issue. You have to get I, some background. Yeah. And I love the social stuff. I mean, even think kitchen skills, or if you work with the gen pop, um, training and lifting skills i mean a lot of this stuff i ask i know. ask for one i ask i give them a list of movements and i say do you have experience with these squat deadlift bit bit you know i go through like everything like that because and the more i know about them the more i can help too that's the other thing you know i feel like when when you hire an online coach or something or a trainer and they send you like four or five questions i'm like what how the hell are you supposed to design anything for me with four or five questions? Right. Um, and even in terms of monitoring, like you said, you know, when I have clients check in with me, you know, yeah, I do the typical, you know, what's your body weight? What's your body fat? We do circumference measurements. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Now, you know, and then I know Mike is a huge fan of HRV and I, I mm -hmm. use it myself. Now, I have a lot of clients who don't want to bother with that. And but I still use feedback from them like, how are you sleeping? How's your hunger? Great. Do you yeah. feel covered after your training? Are you energetic in life? Can you focus at work? You know, like I ask, I still ask questions that force them to sit down and think about the responses to their diet and training, even if it's not necessarily like they're strapping a heart rate monitor to their chest and they're taking their HRV in the morning. <laughs> right. You know, right. That's the thing because those things are important. Those are all measures of progress or lack of progress, or they can help me pinpoint, you know, holes in their programming or what's going well, what's not going well. But, you know, you're right. There's such a lack of that kind of monitoring, I think, in online training in general. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of my, <clears throat> my pet peeve for online training. And we've all seen those programs where it's okay shut up and eat your tilapia and broccoli and do your squats everything will be fine it's like no that <laughs> right yeah. doesn't work for everyone and the reality is for most people looking to get a coach if the more kind of simple stuff worked and they've already done that and you realize that in their intake form then there's probably something else going on and I know at least over the last <clears throat> six years, especially since I started doing HRV, that I feel like I do more, like you said, lifestyle than anything else. Obviously, there's a program. Obviously, there's nutrition. But almost, I'd say 90-ish percent of the conversations that I have with clients are either mindset or lifestyle related. You know, the, the training nutrition is a little bit of the, dare I say, easier part per se. Same here. And I feel like... I feel like that's because a lot of times that's where the problem lies and right. people people forget 
about that, you know, or I talk about that a lot. Like, you know, I always say like, you know, talking about lifestyle and recovery, they're the not the non-sexy components. It's not as trendy to talk about that as it is to talk about diet and training. But at the end of the day, if you're eating well and you're training right, but you're getting four hours of sleep a night, well, we got a problem. Right. We need to address your sleep. You know, don't talk to me about fat burners. Let's talk about why we're not sleeping properly. Or, you know, don't talk to me about nutrient timing when, you know, you're trying to do, it's just, I think a lot of times people forget that lifestyle components, you know, they all build into the body's ability to respond properly or improperly to programming as well. I love it. Yeah. Everything. My wife's a counselor. So we always talk about how all these issues, they're biopsychosocial, you know, and we sometimes I think in exercise science, we focus so much on the bio, but what you just said, I think makes a lot of sense. The psychosocial factors affect your biology, you know, so you've got to take people are complicated things and you got to take all this stuff into account. I like that. Hey, I have a question, though. So you said you've moved toward more general population type people. Um, yes. How do you let's say someone's really new at this whole exercise concept. Um, how long do you take with sort of a general conditioning phase or. You know, I mean, what are some of the basics? Is it a month or two that you take and you just sort of teach them? I mean, for example, someone has no mitochondrial density. They have no fitness base. And, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, they, they'll just start cutting calories or trying to restrictively diet. Right. And they don't even have any kind of base. So as you've moved toward gen pop, have you sort of made an allowance for that? Like, is it a month? Is it two months? How long? I know it would be individual, but... Oh. Yeah, I was just going to say it's, you know, pe people hate my responses to things sometimes because I say, well, it depends. And <laughs> that's like my answer for everything <laughs> or, you know, what's the context. But in general, um, you know, if you're talking about I'm assuming you're talking about somebody who's really got no background in strength training or or fitness. Right. Yeah. Somebody who's eating, you know, your basic American diet, you, you know, right. We're getting up in the morning. We're having like maybe a coffee. We don't eat breakfast. We go out to Panera for lunch. We come home, we eat whatever for dinner. Exactly. Like that kind of deal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you build, in my opinion, you know, you start basic and you build. So we're talking about small changes. People usually come to me, you know, and they say, well, you know, I know I got to do this and I got to weigh and measure and I got to give a, and I try to get them away from all of that because if you have somebody who's making poor dietary choices, the very first thing you want to get them to do is just make healthier choices. I mean, it, it sounds so simple, but honestly, like that's, that's part of my goal is to make it so simple that there's a low chance of failure because you know, that's part of somebody's success on a program as well. You know, if they feel like they're constantly failing, you know, they're not weighing and measuring, they're not this, they're not logging, they're not, you know, uh, tracking or, and they feel like they're failing, that kind of builds a momentum of failure versus a momentum of success. And so the very first thing I want to just try to get them to do is just make better dietary choices. In terms of training, I start them off very basic. Usually I'm talking about strength training three times a week, you know, usually like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of deal. And we're we're doing full body. I usually do full body training mm -hmm. and very basic stuff, you know, basic movements. You want, I want to start them with the basics. So we're talking about, you know, pushing, pulling, squatting, you know, th those types of things. Um, just 
basic movements. A lot of times I dispense the program and people are like, this is it, you know, because it is so simple. But I want to make sure that we build a solid foundation of uh, strength and aerobic fitness before I start to get into anything, fan, you know, super setting, drop setting, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's time for that and it can come later. Right. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I also like that. <clears throat> If you start simple, then you can have more advanced stuff that can be rather simple too, but where do you go from that? And you don't need it, right? If someone's right. not done much exercise before, then, you know, as long as they don't have mechanical issues or pain, you could argue that you could go in almost any direction that's going to be better than where they started. Yes. You know, and obviously there's a, a long-term progression there, but if you start with something that's uber complicated, they don't need it. And then it's just much harder, I think, to progress from there. And then I've I've made this mistake in the past and realized that, oh, now they're looking for something like super fancy whiz bang. And I felt like I backed myself into a corner by having to kind of come up with something crazy each month when I just started in the wrong direction to begin with. Yeah, and I feel, you know, it was funny. I think I, uh, John Russell or however you say his name, posted yeah. about it the other day about um, how social media is uh, negatively impacting fitness. And one of the ways in which it is negatively impacting fitness is by the glorification of these like exercise videos where you see some chick who's like dancing all over a BOSU ball with like 50 different combination moves. <laughs> because oh, yeah. he was like at the end of the day, a five by five squat is boring to watch, right? It doesn't look like fun. Not entertaining. But at the end of the day, that's what works. <laughs> and so I feel like a lot of times, you know, when, when I give people very basic programming like that, particularly in the beginning, they're looking for something more fancy because they feel like that's what they need to do. When in all reality, most people, if you're talking about gen pop and they're, they're, they're just starting out, they just need to eat better and move more. <laughs> You know, you, that's it's that simple. You know, people sit too much, they move too little, and, you know, they make poor dietary choices. So rather than going eat six times a day, eat this many calories and weigh and measure, usually I'll have them start out just real basic with food lists. You know, pick foods from these food lists, comprise your meals of these foods, and let's just start, let's just start moving. You know, let's just get up and move around a little bit. Yeah. Um, and keep it real simple and then and then you can build from there you know but you need a foundation first yeah and you had talked about lifestyle do you have any tips for getting people to sleep more because i know for myself that that's been kind of a constant battle with some clients going on for quite a while and i mean i've leveraged hrv and some other stuff that seems to help but just curious on on your thoughts on that one yeah, that's one I struggle with too. I'll be dead honest. Um, because sometimes they don't sleep because they, you know, we're talking about an insomnia issue or like literally they can't fall asleep. Um, their cortisol levels are all out of whack. They're wired at night. They're you know, we got like adrenal issues going on. Sometimes they can't sleep because it's time based. You know, they work these jobs and they come home and they have kids and, and then until they sit at the end of the night it's they, they, they like lack the time to go to sleep so if it's a time issue i try to encourage them to increase it incrementally because then it's like you're not trying to swallow the elephant in one big gulp kind of deal 
you know, if you have somebody who's only sleeping like five hours a night, I say try to make it five hours and 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Let's just try to incrementally bump it up from there. And then, you know, the, obviously the more difficult circumstances, at least in my opinion, are people who aren't sleeping because they can't sleep. It's not that they don't have the time to go to sleep. It's that they go to bed and they just lay there. Like they can't, they literally can't fall asleep. Mm -hmm. You know, then there's other issues at play. You know, that brings up a good point. Have you found yourself having to make referrals? I mean, whether it's like really getting really prescriptive with the nutrition or with sleep problems, do you ever make referrals like that? Or do you keep it general and choice-based enough? It sounds like, like the food list and stuff you do pretty, you know, choice-based and, you know. That I find I refer people or tell now, maybe not even refer, but just say this is beyond the scope of my expertise type of deal. More when it comes to people who are in the situation they are, like emotional eating, binge eating, um, binge starvation, uh, things like that. I will tend to stay away from that and then refer them out mm -hmm, mm -hmm. versus anything else because I, I truly feel... I truly feel that until, you know, if you're somebody who is eating out of emotion or, you know, that's something that needs to be addressed through a counseling outlet, not through a trainer. Right. Amen. Yeah. You know, that's not, I'm not a therapist. Right. <laughs> as much as, as much as trainers get talked to like therapists. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But at the end of the day, I'm not, and I don't have expertise in that and I'm not equipped to handle that. And if somebody is eating emotionally or binging, they're never going to reach the body composition or the body weight that they want until they address that issue through the appropriate outlet. Yeah. Hey, uh, I yeah. Let, if, I, if I may, uh, yeah. let's say we get someone, and uh, Mike and I have talked about this on the show recently, but and Phil too, like people, when it comes to fat loss, which is sort of our main focus here, people don't follow progression models. You know, like like I think all of us have been saying, you just... They start eating what they consider very strict, very low-calorie kind of stuff and right. whatever it may be. But what is your bias? Once you get somebody, they have a fitness base, and they're learning the generalities of better eating, um, do you tend to pull carbohydrates, like refined carbohydrates, or would you rather have them shy away from um, fats? Uh, is it just sort of a combination because of the general choices they make? What's your personal sort of attitude toward carb and fat, sort of as the main energy sources, you know? It depends on the activity level. Mm -hmm. The client, number one, you know, if you have somebody who's very athletic versus somebody who's not, or, high, or somebody who's very, you know, active versus somebody who's not, that's going to make a huge difference. Also, what type of training are they doing, right? There's a huge difference between you know, going for a four mile run and then doing like CrossFit or something. So I tend to look at those things. Two, you know, everybody's body responds to macronutrient ratios differently. So a lot of times the judgment calls I make on whether or not I pull calories from carbs or fat, you know, somebody asked me this the other day on, on Instagram and I, and I said a lot of it has to do with what I know of the client and how their body responds. Mm -hmm. Some people function better on carbs. They feel better on carbs. You know, other people, high-carbohydrate diets really make them feel like shit. Right. And they need something where they're higher fat, higher protein. So 
it really depends on what makes the client feel their best, look their best, perform their best. That's where I tend to go. Well, um, what about what about yourself? I mean, you're a high-level athlete, and people like to look to that population, at least with yourself. When you got stage ready, I mean, with the incredible leanness that you have to achieve on stage, how did how did you do it? I eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I am, what is a lot? Just out of curiosity, just for people well, listening. Obviously, it depends. If I'm right. if I'm prepping for, I do. I will say I carb cycle. I'm a very big believer in uh, carb cycling and caloric manipulation versus just like making blanket cuts across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so I carb cycle. So I would say that. Depending, you know, on the day, I'm anywhere from 100 grams of carbs all the way up to four. Um, wow, 400, nice. Yeah, just it just depends. Um, you know, it depends on what my goals are. It depends on where, if am I prepping, am I not prepping, you know, things like that. I tend to be somebody who responds much better to higher protein, higher carb, and lower fat. And a lot of that has to do with my activity level, some of it with my genetics. Um, I also, I have ulcerative colitis, so I have uh, irritable bowel disorder and really high intakes of fat tend to be really rough on my digestive system, mm-hmm. even if it's healthy fat. So I have to watch my fat intake because when it creeps too high, it starts to adversely impact my digestive health. Right. So I tend to be much more of a, of a carb person that tends to, you know, and that's just me. Right. So, if you were going to get someone ready for stage, would you would you at least discuss the carb cycling then? Is it, is that sort of one of the things that you feel like, you know, is very helpful? Then it sounds like. Yeah, I yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't like to. I don't really like to massively restrict any one macro unless it's like absolutely necessary. You know, I don't find that that's beneficial for the majority of the population. And obviously there's like instances where I've had people do really, really well on keto diets and things like that. But when you're talking about getting somebody ready for a competition, I try to like to keep all macros in and at least somewhat normal ratios. Right. I think that's wise. Maintain variety on some level, even if it's cyclical and coming and going. That way, people right. don't—they don't end up deficient in any one thing or overdoing any one thing, you know. Even if we're doing like two to three low carb days and then a high carb day, you know, something like that. But I don't like mm-hmm. to just to just restrict them across the board and just have somebody go low carb for too long because what people don't understand either, especially when it you know, if you massively restrict carbohydrates, and I did this when I was younger because this is what I said you learn a lot from your failings. Um, you know, because you didn't know any better, you know, and then people say, well, I can't eat a carb, you know, I'm carb sensitive. And mm-hmm. as soon as I look at a carb, I bloat. But if you've restricted carbohydrates from your diet and you've been like existing on like pretty much protein and veggies for like months and months and months and months on end, it is going to impair your body's ability to efficiently, you know, handle a carb when you do eat it. Oh, and right. it, yeah. so I think it just only makes it worse. So I try to never put my clients in that position. In terms of fat, you know, I don't mind going low fat with a client if I have to, but I also won't just, I mean, I've seen some women who like had diets where they were eating like 10 and 15 grams of fat a day. And and I mean, a certain level of fat is required, particularly for women, just for hormonal balance and function. 
I mean, when you start really drastically restricting fat intake for too long, that's when you get like brittle hair and, and dry skin and all kinds of, you know, adverse effects in the body because your fat's just too damn low. Yeah. And your food choices then, I tried that once years ago. And there's almost like, you don't realize how many small amounts of fat and small amounts of carbohydrates are in a lot of foods. Until so you go like one crazy extreme and you're like, oh man, I'm, if I see another egg white, I'm going to puke. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I try, I mean, competing is extreme. There's no, there's really no way around that. You know, people will try to, oh, you know, I want to compete, but I want to remain balanced. Eh, it's a lack of balance. Bodybuilding is a lack of balance. <laughs> Um, but I, tr I try to, re I guess I want to say I try to keep my clients as balanced as I possibly can despite that. So, you know, when I diet a client for a show, I always try to think about their long-term health as well as just the short-term goal of getting to stage. I'm never willing to compromise them in the long-term just to get them to look good for a show. Right. No, I, I encounter that. I very rarely work with clients, but um, I, when in recent history, I helped him get ready. I said, you're going to get lean enough. You could lose your period, right? Because she was really going to compete in a pretty big competition. And, right. I, I, and I said, really, my only rule is I want to work with you for at least six weeks afterwards so we can yeah. do some kind of refeed, make sure the restoration of the menstrual cycle happens, you know, things like that. Um, and so many coaches don't do that. It, it is like it, it. Oh, it makes me mad. <laughs> yeah, it's um, health. It's like you said. It's their long term. It's their. It's yeah. their health. You know that. And, and an educated person can't. It's almost like you said because there's imbalance, and I agree with that very much when it comes to stage ready leanness. Right. That level of imbalance it almost creates a, um, a conflict between your role as an educated person and having this person's health in your hands, at least partly, and then getting them ready, you know, without being reckless. Because those two things, it's almost like the academic side and what you know, or the healthcare side, it, it butts almost head on with what has to be done to get re that lean for a show, you know? Yeah, and it's, and I love what you said about, you know, working with somebody after the show, because one of my pet peeves, both you know, I've had it happen to me, you know, when I worked with coaches where they just you're once the show is over, they're done. They don't they don't help you with anything. Yeah. And yeah. when I was younger and I was in my 20s, you know, and you don't know any better, you know, I didn't know about reverse dieting and I didn't know about gradually adding calories and taking care of, the, of yourself post show. You know, nobody taught me that. And I learned the hard way through several poor rebounds. And now whenever I work with clients for a show, they know when they get off stage what they're supposed to be doing and how they're going to start taking care of themselves after the show is over because it's just it's so important that's wise yeah yeah last comment i had on that too is that i i'm obviously a fan of hrv but i've used that in a few competitors even post-show because there's the mentality of all this build-up to the show which i talked to them about during that they assume that the second they walk off stage, you know, their their period will magically come back. All their stress will resolve, you know, and all these things that they just think are going to happen. And it just doesn't because all that, you know, stress and everything else is cumulative. So it's not going to just dissipate within a couple days, weeks, or there's some literature even showing months. So it, 
I was, it takes a while and a plan to get out of that. It takes a while, you know, when, and even I've, I've noticed, um, in my own, you know, competing that it, it usually takes me a good eight weeks or so after a show until I start to really feel normal, both in my training, you know, before I start to feel stronger, before I start to, you know, feel better physically, you know, before my hunger, you know, my satiety levels start to balance. It takes me a good like eight weeks. Yeah, I think the average person, they just don't realize the very temporary state that you're in when you do a physique competition, you know, whether it's your endocrine system, your joints, uh, your psychology, everything is in a very target date diets are just weird in a lot of ways for the general population at least because so many things like you said have been what are some of the small behavioral tweaks that we know can stick you know things of that nature and that kind of stuff goes out the window when you're purposely trying to depress your body fat for literally a day and then and then what you know and i just think a lot of people they look at the the competitors on the cover of magazines, they think, oh, they always look that way. They don't realize how temporary it is. And once you get your head around this idea that he or she, they look that good, but it's pretty temporary, um, you know. Well, it's, it's the result of such an unsustainable precision. Great, unsustainable, yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about, you know, at least I'm, when I step on stage, I mean, my peak week, we're measuring water, we're measuring sodium, we're manipulating everything, you know, and you can't live like that. No, no. <laughs> I mean, just, you can't live your life like that on a consistent basis. Yeah, you can do it for a couple of days to achieve a very specific look, you know, for a couple of hours, but even that, you know, it's a couple of hours, right? Between prejudging and the night show, it starts to fade. Oh, right, right. Only yeah. hold that level of conditioning for such a small moment in time, it's just too hard, you know, to sustain. And that's what I say to people is, you know, it's an unsustainable, it's the result of unsustainable precision. That's the term I use all the time. You know, we're talking about structure to the most anal nth degree and you just can't do that consistently. No, it's obsessive really. And it has to be, you know, but you can't live in that kind of state, you know, so. No, and there's, and I think the other thing, you know, when the general population is looking at fat loss versus, you know, and they think that that's what they like have to do to get in shape. I try to explain to them that, you know, bodybuilding is its own pursuit. It's its own sport or whatever you want to call it. And it's not a sustainable approach for everyone. And it's not the way everyone should have to live their life just because they want to lose some pounds. You know, there's, there's a difference, you know, you're not going to be able to achieve the look of a guy on the cover of muscle and fitness by just making better dietary choices. You know, I encourage people have to have more realistic expectations about the process and what they can anticipate to receive from it. Right on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. We greatly appreciate it. And where can people find out more about you? Um, you can visit my website. It's uh, www dot a l l i hyphen fitness dot com alleyfitness.com um can feel free to shoot me an email i always try to respond to people's emails it's uh allison moyer at live.com it's my maiden name so i haven't changed it yet <laughs> um and yeah follow me on instagram allison moyer friend me on facebook something like that those are about my only two social media platforms though i haven't gotten into the twitter snapchat all that 
Right. right. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the program today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. We'll uh, catch up with you next week. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So. Thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.